Episode 43 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today we're talking all about firearms training with Team Smith & Wesson shooter Brandon Wright. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. This is episode 43. We are talking about shooting the right way, and of course, that is with my friend, Mr. Brandon Wright. Brandon's a competitive shooter with Team Smith & Wesson. He also works with Smith & Wesson as a regional sales manager for law enforcement and is a former law enforcement officer himself. So I'm going to let you in on the little conversation that him and I had. It was awesome. Really enjoyed it. And it's all about firearms training. Before we jump into that, if you haven't already checked out the ILET Summit, make sure to do so. Go to iletsummit.com. Just because you missed the live free event in July doesn't mean you can't get access to over 70 hours of training content that was put together by over 45 of the top instructors in the world. Go to iletsummit.com. Use promo code BREAKDOWN if you want to save a little bit on the all-access pass. And stay tuned for all of the updates that we're going to have coming at you real soon. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode with Brandon and get at it. Here you go. All right, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me, man, all the way uh, pretty much from across the country. I mean, we're, we're pretty far away from each other, uh, me in central Canada and you down in, in Florida. So what's, uh, what's going on down there, man? Hey, dude, thank you so much for, uh, first off, thank you so much for having me on here. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor to uh, be able to talk to you and, and hopefully share some ideas that can help some people in, uh, you know, in, in, this, in this time that we have together. Uh, things are going good, man. It's, uh, you know, with this pandemic right now, things are a little sketchy, but, um, you know, training is carrying on as usual and, uh, you know, trying to hit the range when I can. It, it hasn't closed down. In fact, I think the ranges around me now have actually picked up from uh, all the gun sales that have happened in the last uh, week or so. So <laughs> I might have, might have to be fighting for some, uh, some range time to get out there from all these new people that are wanting to learn how to shoot a gun for the first time. Yeah, everybody thinks it's Armageddon. Um, I know, I know. One one thing that I was really excited, so I'm excited for this conversation because this is the first one-on-one interview I'm doing where we're strictly talking firearms, and and that's it. And it's interesting because, you know, you and I have talked a few times before this, but when we talk about what's happening right now, because when we first started talking was months ago before this whole pandemic even rolled out, and we were talking training, and we were talking about how – you don't have to go and, you, you know, people see all these things out in, its, in movies right now with all this high speed training and shooting and all the John Wick stuff and super fast combat reloads and three gun and all these types of things. People are losing track of the simplicity of shooting and how to do it effectively and how you can do it without having to put tens of thousands of rounds downrange every single year. So I know that's something you're excited about talking about. So let's jump right into it, man. What's, what is it right now? Why are people so focused on doing all this high speed stuff when it's really not helping them out? Well, you know, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up and let me lay a little foundation before, uh, before I answer that question. And I promise I'll come back and answer it. Uh, so the foundation I come from is uh, from a law enforcement background. So in, in that arena, uh, no matter what you did, you couldn't miss, right? If you if you missed your threat and hit an innocent person, you were held liable for that. And we used to say that there's a, a lawyer attached to every round that goes downrange, all right? And that's going to be important for, for later in, in helping answer that question. So, uh, so that's where I came from. And then I was with uh, the Department of Defense. I was with a civilian contractor teaching, had the ability to teach probably over 10,000 students. Um, and I had the unique opportunity uh, in my training to demonstrate everything it was that we were doing. So in a class where we would shoot, you know, a thousand rounds a day, I would probably shoot about 350 to 500 rounds, depending on the, depending on the class. With that being said, I came from an, an area where I could shoot 
you know, 35 to 50,000 rounds a year. And so I was able to build my capabilities and my foundation for shooting throughout that. And so I know a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And so what changed for me was in law enforcement, it was 100% accountability. So you had to be solid with what you did. And what I found was, honestly, I found that I was very slow. Uh, You know, I remember my first using a timer and getting out on the range and mixing it up. And I'd say my first draw shot at 10 yards was you know, anywhere from 175 to about two seconds. And that was with a, you know, level three retention holster. Uh, My splits were probably, you know, around 35 or 40, something like that. And I I shot what I would call a qualification type tempo, where you shoot a, you know, a cue target, and it's bang, bang. And because I wanted to make sure I was going to qualify, because if you don't qualify, you don't carry your gun. So with all of that liability attached to every round, with, with everything going on, it, it had to be, you know, 100% hits. As I got into shooting in, with uh, in the civilian contractor, I started to get to work with people that were much higher level than I was uh, in the military. A lot of the, um, the tier one units uh, that came through or special forces guys, there were some talented individuals. And so I started to scratch my head and figure out, you know, hey, what is it? that they're doing that I'm not doing. And it just came down to speed. It just, it just really took an in-depth look with, okay, when you look at a simple draw from, from your holster to presentation, what goes into all of that? And so I started to break everything down. Well, then what really opened my mind or opened my eyes to a lot of things was competitive shooting. So about 13 or 14 years ago, I started uh, shooting competitively. I, my first match, I'm telling you right now, bro, my first match, I was below 50%. Now, look, I was a police officer. I was on SWAT team, and I was a firearms instructor. All of those things, you know, I had to carry a gun every day, and I was less than half the people that were there. And I'm like, man, I will never in my life get beat by a 7-Eleven clerk or a – and no, <laughs> no offense to anybody who does that, right? Or – you know, basically people that don't carry a gun for a living. I'm like, dude, these guys are waxing me all over this fucking range. Like, what do I got to do to fix this? So I, I took a class from a competitive shooter who introduced me to carrying a logbook. And uh, that was Gordon Carroll at the time. He, uh, he worked, for, he shot for Team Smith & Wesson. Uh, he showed me this and started to break down things for me in a different manner that I've never been exposed to. And I was like, oh, okay, now the light bulb came on. And so I started tracking a logbook of just the simplest drills, like draws, reloads, uh, transitions, getting in and out of position. And, you know, honestly, what feels fast and what looks fast uh, are two totally different things, especially when it's on the timer. So if my draw stroke goes from a 175 to a one second, like now I'm about a 0.9 to a one second at 10 yards for an A zone hit. That's not out of a triple retention holster. Understand that's from a, just an open top holster. You know, sometimes I can get into eights. Uh, you know, what went into all of that? And honestly, it was just simplifying the process and, and take, taking all the BS out of it. You know, there's a lot of people that teach a lot of stuff out there on YouTube and social media, and they, they give their opinions, they give their tips. My question to them is, is okay, yeah, I understand you know what it takes to get there, but can you do it? Because if you can't do it, the learning takes place from the 175 to the 150 to the 125 to the one second mark. That's where the learning takes place for you as an individual. And so to answer your question, I think social media, everybody posts these super fast runs that they, number one, they can't duplicate. It took them 15 freaking tries to get it right. And then they finally got it right. And that's what you see. So you're seeing about 2% of what their true ability is. And so I demo in front of all of my classes and I don't, I don't hit every one of them. And I tell them when I'm pushing my 100%, but I know what I can do pretty much on demand all the time. And it's from that logbook and from simplifying all of these processes to, to break it down and understand what it is that's taking place within something simple as a draw, right? Uh, establishing your grip, the path that the gun goes from the holster to presentation, and then how much time am I reading and recognizing those sights 
before I'm breaking the shop. So I found ways to be able to break all of that stuff down. And uh, that's what's been a game changer for me in being able to be consistent. That's a long way of saying, you know, it's, there's a lot that goes into it, but when you, when you just break it down to its simplest form and you isolate each one of those little characteristics, then together it comes together and it's just a, it's a phenomenal product at the end of the day. It's really, a, I love the, what you said. There's a difference between feels fast and looks fast and, yeah. and is fast, right? I mean, yep, yep. I had, I had, you know, everybody knows the old model, like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And I had somebody, I had somebody say that to me or no. It was, so somebody, I'd said that to somebody and they looked at me and they said, no motherfucker, fast is fast. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but you have to, saying. but you have to start slow to get fast and Correct. there's a difference, right? Yes. So, yes. and I think that's, I, that, that was probably the funniest thing that anybody had said to me in a long time. And I was just like, I was like, all right, yeah, you're right. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Fair yeah. enough. But you, you're a hundred percent correct in that in this age of social media with all of the stuff that's on YouTube, I mean, it's great for a lot of things. It's great for people that are in remote locations that don't have access to top tier yeah. firearms instructors. They can go on a YouTube and they can watch guys, right. That are expert shooters walk them through step by step. This is your grip. This is your stance. Like, and they can go through the basics and these are all things that they can, it's all dry practice. Yeah, well, and that's another thing too, is that, you know, dry fire was another big part of, of my regiment. So I can't get to the range every day. Uh, like I used to, I used to live on the range for, for 11 years. I mean, Monday through Friday, sometimes through Sunday, I was teaching. I, I miss it, but I don't miss it because, you know, the, the times that it's 130 degrees outside, the last place I want to be is an open top range or when it's, you know, 20 degrees outside or it's pouring rain. So now I get the ability to kind of pick and choose when I'm going to, I'm going to go out there and experience that. But I don't get that opportunity as much as I used to, but I've been out of the, I've been out of that game for four years, four and a half years now. I've been with Smith and Wesson now full time for probably four and a half, five years. and so. In that time, I don't get to the range, but maybe twice a month, if that. And so uh, I'm training a lot, like I'm working, uh, you know, through teaching classes. And so that's kind of my practice. And so uh, I had to find something else to keep those skills up. And dry practice was, man, that's where it's at. It's about the manipulations, uh, you know, smoothing out the draw strokes, smoothing out your reloads, getting into position, moving the gun from target to target. You can do all of that in from the comfort of your home. And there's some really great tools out there, uh, like cert pistols, uh, dry fire trainer. I mean, I, I'm not trying to promote these companies, but they're companies that I use that, that make sense to me that work for what I need it to do. So I think those are, those are phenomenal things that the guys can use. The beautiful thing about what I do here is that, I mean, if it works, it works. Right. And so yep. I always tell yep. people like, don't be afraid to, if, if there's something that you use personally, I mean, let's talk about it because somebody listening to this may not know that certain things exist or they may be like, I wonder what the best option is for, for this type of training. And that's what sure. this is all about. Right. So um, I, you're <clears> right. <throat> cert pistols are awesome. What do you yep. think there's this big push now to move into simulator training? Where, oh yeah. You know what I mean? Do you want to talk about simulator <laughs> training? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, you know, law enforcement's been using it for years. We've had a, uh, you know, fats machines, we've had a range 3000, they've got all these different things. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you from my perspective, both training those, training on those and using those, they are meant for the decision of what tool to use in what circumstance. For me to say that, okay, taking a, an airsoft pistol, even though it has simulated recoil, even though it has you know, a laser that you can't see on the screen and you're working on fundamentals of pulling the trigger, you are not getting the same benefit as being on the range, pulling the trigger with a true nine forty forty five caliber gun. That's like guys that train people on 22s before they go to nine millimeters. The problem is this, you know, you'll build somebody's confidence and then you'll watch it go right down the toilet the second that the gun recoils in their hand because the more the gun comes back in the hand, the more somebody counters that by anticipating and pushing forward. So when you look at these simulators, 
they're great for decision making, but they're, I don't believe that they're going to make you a better shooter in the sense that you're going to get the same out of it. Now, the reps of drawing the gun and seeing the sights, prepping the trigger, pulling the trigger, but understanding that that's where it stops. That initial part of it is, yeah. If you're trying to measure split times on a cert pistol, like that's not even in the same ballpark. Maybe moving the gun from different target to different target, that sort of thing, maybe a sight acquisition is good, but it really depends on your field of view of how much, how much space you have to, uh, to be able to work. Because if you're working inside like a 21 or 27 inch monitor, I mean, you're really not going to get a whole lot out of that. The gun's not going to move a whole lot. If you've got it casted onto a wall uh, and you're using like a projector and you've got, you know, maybe six or seven, eight feet of screen to work with, you might get a little bit out of that. But I don't know many guys that have that stuff set up in their house. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of technology that's being advanced right now, especially in the in the frame of firearm simulators. And I'm excited because yeah. I'm gonna have some people on down the road too that we're gonna we're gonna talk specifically to those types of things as well. But I mean, I 100% agree with you that a simulator does not replace rounds downrange. There's nope. there's no way if for any person and everybody listening to this, I'm assuming every single person who's listening to this has fired a firearm because you're either in law enforcement, the military, but even for our friends, you know, maybe there's somebody listening to this. It's a first responder um, that hasn't, I mean, most people in Canada, or the U S people that are in these, these groups, I mean, you're either hunters or you've gone out with your buddy to the range or something. Everybody, I would assume that everyone here has fired a firearm. There's no, yep. and you're right. There's a huge difference between the recoil between a 22 and a nine. I mean, I'm a big advocate of using, like, I go out and when I, when I target shoot, I use a nine millimeter all the time. And the simple reason is, is because it's cheaper for me to shoot nine than it is to shoot 45. Sure. So I'll go shoot my nine knowing that there is a difference. Like I'll still shoot the 45 every once in a while, but myself, I know myself well enough to say that I can fire my 45 pretty much just as accurate as I can the nine millimeter. But if I'm shooting at a 22 mod kit on a Glock, there's, there's it, the similarities end there. Like there it's gone. Yep. Like yep. it's, it's completely different. So it's yep. crazy though. There's it, so much, so many different options that people can take. You know, I, I believe in those, some of those might work just to understand manipulation of loading, unloading, uh, you know, to where somebody's not intimidated because when you get a new shooter, if we're talking new shooters here, that's going to be a, a different mindset of building confidence that what they're doing is correct and they're not going to, you know, blow their hand off or something like that. But for experienced shooters to, to substitute what it is you're trying to train, whether you're trying to train nine or 45 or whatever, substituting, yeah, for a, for a dry pistol or a, a laser pistol or an airsoft or a 22 is you're not going to get the same results. You're just going to keep spinning your wheels. The time is just, understanding what goes into the fundamentals of what you're working like a draw stroke from the holster to presentation trigger prep okay let me break the shot not move the gun um that's how oh, that's huge i mean that's 90 percent. i don't know how many times i've worked with experienced law enforcement officers and it's like all right boys let's i'm here to teach you advanced shooting skills but uh we can't get out of the holster right so let's uh let's work on getting out of the holster because <laughs> that's the foundation of what we need you know, they're, they got lives. I mean, everybody works, everybody, nobody, you know, guys that are really good at MMA or self-defense or, or, uh, you know, karate or whatever. It's cause they do it every day and they live it. They breathe it. They, you know, gun guys are no different. The guys that live at the range can do exceptional things because they're in it all the time. And that's what they, that's what they eat, sleep and think about. But, you know, people that have everyday jobs, I mean, they have other things on their mind, you know, that they're worried about. And it's, it's like my, uh, you know, my firearm skills when I was a cop were really good, but my defensive tactics skills sucked because I never practiced that, nor did I care about it. If I couldn't solve it with a, <laughs> with a punch to the jaw or, you know, me pointing my gun at you or, or you know, some other tool that I had on my belt, um, I wasn't going to use it. You know what I mean? Because when it, when it all comes down, it's all a street fight. And, um, you know, you try to try to stay on top and be the one that comes out, obviously, with the guy in handcuffs. But, um, you know, nothing goes ever according to plan. Here's a question that's kind of goes along with that topic. 
Do you feel that there's officers out there that kind of stray away from drawing their firearm because they're not confident in their abilities to use it correctly? Oh, absolutely. That and, um, and liability. I think both of those things go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, when you look at departments nowadays, I went from, we used to, in the state police, we trained, we were shooting every quarter and then budgets got cut. So we went to, uh, semi or we went to uh, biannual so we'd have a fall and a spring firearms and then budgets got cut again so we went down to uh once a year so you're telling me that you know guys that are going out and shooting once a year are going to be proficient to take a shot where uh you know they're in a, a target rich environment like say a school or a mall or a heavily populated area um and they're going to be able to thread the needle uh, you know, I, I just, I don't see it a lot of times. And unfortunately, you know, budgets have been cut so bad where they don't have the time to get out to the range and, uh, and shoot. And I've also seen where departments give, you know, 50 rounds a month or a hundred rounds a month at open range days. And the same, you know, 10 people out of a 300 man agency are the ones that show up because everybody's got, I got this to do. I got that to do. I don't have time. They're just not interested in it. So the guys that are interested in shooting, they're going to be there to work on their skills. But if it's not mandated, dudes ain't doing it. Yeah, I mean, and that's a whole other thing is people's motivation behind doing training on their own, right? It's Yeah, yeah. Something that's bouncing around in my head right now when you, when you say, you know, dropping down the amount of training time. There's, in my mind, when I was with the, with the military, I mean, we, with the way the Canadian force, we're not like the American uh, military, <laughs> right? We don't have a, tr- we don't have a trillion dollar budget. So we would usually, we would get one, one lot, like really good, one really good live range day a year for a regiment for training, or that'd be spread mm-hmm. out over a couple days where we did from individual to section level, platoon level, company level type um, and we'd work through our firearms training and the most time I ever got on on weapon systems when I did, was did my uh, my RSO qualification but when we talk about that kind of training I, I found that a lot of law enforcement agencies draw their types of training from the military because they're like well if the military is doing it it works for us and same thing with the simulator stuff right it's like well if they only go live once a year but then you sil- simulators to supplement everything else then that should work for us but you have to understand that the, the the application is completely different. When you're in the military, it's not day in and day out that you're going to need to fire your firearm. If you're at at home, you're not deployed actively. If I'm going to be deployed, we're going to do workup training. I'm going to get thousands and thousands of rounds downrange before I get deployed. And even then, when we're on the ground, we're going to get time to put rounds downrange. Our law enforcement officers are put in these places every single day, every single shift where they may have to use that firearm and have to use it effectively and in the right time. And it, it's very, it's frustrating when you see like agencies saying, Hey, listen, let's, let's implement what they're doing with the military and, and supplement with simulators. You know what? That's great. But it, I don't think it's going to bridge that gap. And I don't think we're going to be training officers efficiently. No. And I don't know if they draw from the military, but I think people get ideas from what they see and what they read. And I think you're right when you say that, well, it worked for so-and-so, so we can probably do it here. You know, firearms and driving are probably the two highest liability in an agency that they have to worry about. And so with, um, with budgets, the way that they are, it all comes down to money is what it comes down to, unfortunately, money and time. When you look at let's get away with the bare necessity. What do they rely on? They look back at the state requirement. What's the state requirement? State requirement says that I only have to qualify once a year. Well, if that's all you have to do, that's all we have to provide for you as an agency in order to make sure that you're mandated as a police officer. And that sucks. That sucks bad. Now, look, there's a lot of agencies out there that are proactive and they found creative ways to be able to get their people training and get their, get, get them time on the gun. And more importantly, they're showing them techniques that are going to work in a gunfight. So let me, let me come back to that for a second. I'm going to write that down to make sure I don't, I don't forget that part of it. Uh, gunfighting. So let's talk about budgets for a second. So they don't have any, they don't have the, the money, number one. And then two, they, it's, it's a, one of those liabilities that, oh, we've been, you know, five, 10 years, we haven't had an officer involved shooting. Or it's like Jacksonville Sheriff's Office where they're in, inundated with that. And I can tell you that 
you know, I've worked with those guys at the range. They're phenomenal. They're, they're going to classes. They're, they're keeping up on all of the latest techniques and they're passing that along to their guys and their, excuse me, their officers. That is the kind of progressive stuff that I'd love to be able to see in a lot of other agencies. But for the, the smaller agencies that aren't seeing that it's, well, what's the minimum we can get by with? And so that's what they do. And so they look at simulator training and they're like, okay, it's a hundred thousand dollar upfront cost. And I'm just throwing a number out there. I have no idea what it costs, but let's say it's that when we could say, uh, okay, we don't have to spend time at the range. We don't have to buy ammo. Then, then people won't, you know, people are less likely to get hurt. The risk factor goes down completely. Let's just do that. And so they, they give them that training and it doesn't help them on the marksmanship side. It can help them on the decision-making side if that's what they use it for. But it certainly does not replicate a police shooting. I mean, when you look at a police shooting, let's go into the, the, the techniques of gunfighting, right? Uh, I think about the times that I drew my weapon on somebody and I pointed it at them and my, my vision was focused on the person, right? And I'm, show me your hands, show me your hands. And so they, they raise their hands up or they keep them in their pockets, whatever it is that they're deciding to do. I have to assess that situation. So a simulator can help me with that, can help me foresee what may or may not happen based on my training and experience, right? So, so I can see that through this. I can see where the simulator relates to that. And then we say, okay, show me your hands, show me your hands. He comes up with his hands. He turns around. He's compliant. You know what I mean? We, we put them in handcuffs and we walk away. That's 99% of the, the cases that, that that happens with. The, the 1% that that doesn't happen with is what we have to plan for. So it's one of those situations where it's show me your hands, show me your hands. My vision's on the threat. Well, then that, that dude comes out with a knife or a gun and starts to charge. Well, now that scenario is changing. And how do we teach pistol shooting? We teach slow, steady trigger press, let the gun surprise you when it goes off and focus on the front sight. All three of those things are not going to happen in a police shooting, nor can you replicate those in a virtual type scenario type thing, right? Or the, uh, the simulator. So, so here we have a situation where the officer's faced with something that they've never experienced before. They don't know how to handle it. And now their life's in threat, right? And the one time, the last time they shot their gun, let's say this happens in November, the last time they shot their gun was in April. So imagine, imagine for me as a competitive shooter, not touching my gun for eight months and walking up to nationals on the super squad and saying, all right, boys, I'm ready. Let's go. Like, <laughs> that's not going to happen, right? Like, I'm, I'm not going to be prepared. I'm not going to be ready to compete at that level. And so we look at techniques for gunfighting. And so in a lot of the classes that I teach, I talk about being target focused. I talk about how much sight picture you really need. I talk about slapping the trigger. I talk about the, in what is going to evolve when it actually happens or what I would perceive as happening during that scenario. Um, I personally have never been into a, um, uh, a lethal force scenario where I've actually had to shoot somebody on duty. Uh, but I've, I've, talk to I don't know how many people I've competed at the highest level uh, to where I kind of understand the maximum performance I can get out of a, out of a handgun. And all I got to do is apply that now to a situation. I have been in that situation where, you know, we're raiding a house at two o'clock in the morning, my heart's beating out of my chest and it's, it's go time. You know what I mean? So I know what that, that stress feels like too. So I go back to say, you know, we teach, fundamentals of shooting as if we're shooting bullseye targets. But when combat scenarios happen, it happens complete opposite of what we train. And so it's very difficult to make that link, that connection, when what we're teaching is bullseye shooting on the flat range, and then we get out and it's combat shooting, and it's all the techniques that we learned before are now really not playing effect at this point, right? When a guy starts running at you, there's no way you're going to focus on the front sight. There's no way that you're going to be able to do this and not slap the trigger. And so uh, I think that number one, we are, we're behind the times in training with our agencies. Uh, we need to get them exposed to higher levels of shooting, faster levels of shooting. I get the fortunate ability to go around and, and demo Smith and Wesson products. And I try to pour into these officers some of the things that I've gone through and some of the things that I've experienced 
to try to prepare them and make them think about shooting in a different aspect. And a lot of times they look at you like you got three heads and I'm like, just think about it for a minute. I know this is what you've always done. This is how you've always trained people, but is that what happens in real life? And they, nine times out of 10, they look and shake their head and go, no. I said, well, let's replicate what happens in real life. And so in order for me to get to that point, in order to get officers to that point, I've got to spend two days with them. So one, they've got to be able to, you know, foot the bill for me to come out and train them. Uh, and, and then the other thing is they need the ammo. So when I look at them and say, we're going to shoot 1,200 to 1,600 rounds in two days, I go, oh, well, number one, we, I don't have that kind of ammo budget. Well, the only way to, to, to learn this stuff is to actually pull the trigger. And I can't make you do it two trigger pulls and go, okay, you got it. All right, let's move on to the next one. You've got to embed it into your head. Now I know, you know, to say, hey, let's take 1,500 rounds and let's go to a thousand man agency and everybody's going to take this two day course is probably going to, you know, that'd be absurd. I get laughed at like that would never happen because they don't have the money or the budgets to be able to support that kind of training. Although that's the level of training that we need every police officer out in the United States to have. Like it's not just for SWAT guys. It's not just for the firearms instructors. Like everybody should have this kind of information because at any given time, they've got to be able to perform. They've got to be able to uh, neutralize a scenario to not only keep themselves safe, but keep uh, others safe, what they're employed to do. Yeah, I, it's it's crazy to me the how everybody says. Well, if you're if you're not SWAT, you don't need you don't need to get as many rounds downrange, right? Those are the specialists. Yeah. Those are the guys that need to know how to shoot. And it's like, well, now here's me talking out of my ass completely. But I would guess that the amount of officer-involved shootings that involve patrol officers versus officers from specialty units, I bet you the ones from regular patrol officers vastly outweighs those from specialty units. Oh, because just go to ODMP, the officer down memorial page, and look at all the ones that have died from gunshot wounds. It's not, they're not the SWAT guys because the first guy that's going to get to an active shooter scenario is the guy that's working that area, the uniform officer. And when I say guys, I mean guys and girls. But when you look at that, those are your first responders. Those are the ones that are going to get there. You know, I, I keep a, an active shooter kit in my truck, and it's not because I'm looking to get involved with something like that. Look, I've got the training. I've got the ability. We need an all hands on deck. If we got a guy in there shooting innocent people to, to eliminate that scenario right away. And if people knew that, you know, there's, there's highly trained officers, they, they've got the right equipment, they've got the right training, you know, maybe that would deter people from doing stupid stuff like that. Yeah, it's oh, the, the whole active threat component to everything is it's mind boggling. The, from yeah. everything from, you know, what people are saying about how we should be handling schools and, you know, safety of schools and arming teachers and uh, all these different things. Obviously, it's different now. It, it's different for, for us up here in Canada, obviously, because that is never going to be an option. Um, yeah. But for for the United States, I mean, you know, I had, a, I had the opportunity to interview a buddy of mine. His name is Brian Ward. He's out of New Zealand. So we had talked very briefly about the Christchurch shooting um, at the mosque and how their police force has changed. And because they're a Commonwealth nation, most of their officers were not armed, usually, or had access, wow. immediate access to firearms. Now, since that's changed... And that uh, incident occurred. Now there's firearms uh, in, in the vehicles that officers can access. Sometimes they'll actually have them on patrol with them, depending on their roles. You know, and, and same thing up here in Canada. I mean, most, if not all, of our peace officers are armed with access to secondary or weapons, long rifles, or um, assault, assault rifle platforms um, in their vehicles. But in the U.S., it's completely different. I mean, you guys have, depending, I mean, obviously, depending on what state you're in, but there's, there's such a, a larger access to firearms in general. When we talk about that and we talk about officers in the United States, because there is such more of a, there is more of a prevalence of firearms, is there an inherent responsibility on officers? If you're going to be a police officer, is there an inherent responsibility that you understand and actually go out and train on your own and, and just realize that, you know, this is a, this is going to be something that is very realistic that you may have to do. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you have to take the onus on yourself. I mean, it's just, it's just like for anything, you know? Uh, so if I'm going to be a police officer, like I'm, I'm in decent shape. I'm not in fighting shape, what I would consider like physically. Um, but if, if I were to go back to be a cop, the first thing I'd start doing is physical training. Like I need to be proficient in uh, physical fitness. I've got to be proficient with all of my tools. That includes long guns, shotguns, less lethal, tasers, rifles, pistols, uh, you know, everything that you carry on your bat belt. And so uh, that's up to you as an individual to want to do. There has to be a drive from you to do it, not only for yourself, but for your community that you're protecting and your fellow officers. Like, I don't know how many times I'd been on scene with a scenario where, you know, as a trooper, I'd cover three or four counties. And sometimes I didn't know who was coming as my backup because my next officer on my radio channel could be four counties over. So it's going to take him probably, you know, anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes to an hour to get to. So they're going to send me a, a local guy, which is fine, right? We all wear a uniform and a badge. But if I got a guy to me that couldn't help handle the situation that was overweight, that was out of shape, that, you know, got out of breath getting out of his car, what good is he doing me? Because now I've got to not only fight this guy, I got to deal with him medically afterwards, you know? So it's like, let's go, man. Like, take some pride in what you're doing. You know, be proficient, go take training classes, put a little money into it. I don't know how many dudes, man, when you graduate the academy, there's a couple of things. You got to get a flashlight, you got to get, you know, a good knife, you got to get a couple of tools. And there's guys that are taking the cheap way out. And I'm like, guys, it's, that's your life, man. It's a hundred dollars. Put it into it. Well, I don't have, well, save your money and don't go out drinking, right? Go (laughs) substitute a couple cases of beer for that flashlight that's going to, that's going to work for you on the road. Like, you know, save up, take a training class from not only a pro shooter, but like a, you know, somebody that's tactically sound that might be a, like a a former tier one guy, you know, taking somebody at your local range. Yeah. He could probably show you the basics and whatnot, but you want to get to the next level. You got to, you got to step into the arena and play with everybody. And, um, I think it's, it's guys don't take that onus on themselves to get proficient uh, it's like telling a, a roofer to go roof that house, but you have to show him how to use the hammer before he can get up there. It's going to take him seven days now to roof that house where somebody knows how to use his tools, knows how to pre-stage everything, you know, has been there, done that, get it done in a day and a half. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, everybody that uses tools, you know, you need to know how to use it. You have to be confident with it. You have to know that you can step out on that range. Like you wouldn't believe the amount of people that come home happy because they qualify. I'm like, bro, we, we, we double the distance on this and shoot it one handed and still make the times and qualify. Like, come on, this is like the bare minimum for you to show proficiency with your, with your firearm, whether it's your rifle or your pistol, like, come on, we should all be crushing this thing. And, and, and that shouldn't even be a subject to conversation afterwards. It could be like, you know, Hey, let me catch up with my boy. Oh, let me shoot this qual real quick. Knock this out. Okay. Let me go back to my conversation with my buddy. Instead, it's, oh my gosh, I got to qualify. I'm nervous. Like, I don't know if I can do it. My hands are sweating. I'm like, this isn't even stress yet. People start pointing guns at you and coming at you with knives. Like, then you can be stressed out. Then you can worry about, you know, all the other things that go into it. But man, like, seriously, it's a paper qual. Let's go. Let's talk about training for a second and, and other types of training that people can do. Now, there's some organizations out there, um, things like uh, IDPA, IPSC, things like that. Do you recommend that if officers have the time and, you know, to, to go in and be parts of those organizations, do you recommend that to them? 100%, 150%. And so uh, let me talk about it for a minute. So I don't see a lot. Of, I see, I'm seeing more and more law enforcement officers get into competitive shooting. And it's on the local levels, which is great. And so, to be honest with you, there's a lot of guys that are, that are hesitant in doing it because they think that, well, since I'm a law enforcement officer, I'm this, I, I should be able to perform at this level. And they very quickly realize that there's a, there's a whole nother gear to get into for shooting to go faster. And so, it was competition shooting that brought me out of my shell that brought me out into the world of speed shooting. And so uh, I love the guys that say competition will get you killed in the streets. 
And I, I always have this argument for him. I'm like, okay, look, every active shooter scenario we've had, whether it's Mandalay Bay or, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? And, and active, you know, the, the schools down here in Florida when they have them, they didn't have to be tactically trained to understand that when people are shooting at you with real guns and real bullets, that you run for things that are going to stop real bullets, like concrete, cars, metal, like people look for that and they run to that. So I, I don't have to be tactically trained to do that. The tactical training comes into the scenario when it's, okay, I need to flip my switch and instead of running from the gunfire, I'm now running towards the gunfire. That is the harder thing to try to convince people to do in training to actually run towards the guy that's killing people. And so when you look at competitive shooting, competitive shooting, you win on two accounts. You are faster and more accurate than everybody else. You can't get up there and shoot a bunch of misses and hit a bunch of no shoots and miss a bunch of this, that, and the other because you're wicked fast and can't hit anything, right? The, the scale is unbalanced at that point. Uh, but the guys that can shoot accurately can shoot within their means because here's the thing, in USPSA, it's you get five points if you hit the center of the target. Uh, then you get three points and then one point based on uh, major, minor power factor. And then major power factor, you get five, four, three. So you get more points for shooting a 40 or a 45 or, a, or an open gun. All right. That, regardless of that, uh, you still got to hit the center. You still get five points for hitting the center every time you hit the center. So if you hit a bunch of Ds or if you hit a bunch of misses, you're not going to be at the top. In IDPA, they've changed the rules now where if you hit the center, there's no time added. If you hit the Charlie or the outside, that's a full second. It's like, what could you do in a second? And then you hit the very outside, what would be a D on an IPSC target, it's three seconds. Three seconds. I can shoot, reload, and shoot in three seconds. And so that, that sport does not allow for misses. It doesn't allow, I mean, you get five seconds for a miss. Five seconds is either half or a quarter of a stage uh, in an IDPA match that you just gave up by missing the target. So either one of them don't promote fast shooting and not hitting the target. So if competitive shooting, there's two things it's going to build for you. It's going to build your ability to see and recognize under speed the sights and the gun and what's happening on the gun and the other thing it's going to be build is your manipulations, right? Being able to drive the gun from target to target, being able to reload the gun uh, quickly, all of these things. And there's a lot more that it goes into, but uh, competitive shooting will absolutely build your gun handling skills 100%. Uh, I promise that when rounds start flying, you will look to run for cover or you'll look to neutralize that threat as quickly as you can. And if you can see and recognize what's happening on the gun faster and understand and interpret what I call the gun language, interpret what's going on with that, then you're more apt to neutralize that scenario faster than somebody who just picked their gun up six months ago. I was always interested with, with uh, the competitive shooting side of things. And so here, here brings up an interesting topic too when we talk about equipment people seem to think like for example like yeah like i had i'd mentioned at the beginning but when you bring up movies like john wick and you watch the types of transition and, and reloads and all the stuff that he has those weapons are very very modified and yep. and the same thing with competitive shooting it's not a duty pistol right there's things like flared magwells and and all these different types of things that go into it do do where do you think that do you think that's going to change for uh, you know, for line of duty uh, pistols. And I mean, it's different, obviously, up here in Canada um, and in other places around the world. I mean, the officers are issued their firearms. Everything's completely standardized. But in some places in the U.S., I understand that, you know, officers can can bring a secondary weapon, a backup weapon, their, or their, even their primary is their own weapon. Um, where do you think there's a, is there a happy medium in between competitive style firearms and just um, stock firearms? Well, let me, yeah, let me back you up for just a second. So uh, there are two, two to three, I'd say four categories that you could shoot in that would be considered a stock gun. Um, and that would be production, carry optics, uh, single stack, 
and revolver. And so really the only thing that guys change on those guns is they'll change the sights, which now companies like Smith and Wesson are starting to produce guns that have an orange front sight and a plain black rear. So the sights are comparable. They're still not the exact same, but they're comparable. Then the other thing they do is, is they might lighten the trigger a little bit. And so when you look at those four categories, those are just almost stock guns. Um, when you get into open and limited, that's when you start to get in, excuse me, that's when you start to get into the, um, the, the 5,000, the $12,000 guns that are tricked out. And so I would, I would recommend this for guys. Look, run what you brung, right? Get your duty gear, uh, show up and run your stock gun and understand that just compete in a, in a category that's going to give you a like scoring, meaning that I don't want to show up with a, a, uh, a nine millimeter uh, M&P 2.0 pistol and expect to compete in limited where they're running 50 ounce guns with, um, you know, 140 millimeter magazines and all this, and they're being scored major versus minor. Show up with your M&P, put an extra mag pouch on your belt, and run production, right? Shoot something that is in a category that's comparable. Otherwise, you're comparing apples to oranges, and you don't want to do that. If I were to step up with a production gun, my M&P, uh, it's a $500, you know, gun out of the box. I might change the sights. I might play with the trigger just a little bit. But if I go and shoot open with that gun, I'm comparing apples to oranges. They have a compensated red dot gun with magwells and 170 millimeter magazines. And so those two things are not the same. But if I take my M&P out of the box and I go and compete in uh, production, then I'm comparing apples to apples. And so my skill set then can be measured amongst everybody else in that same category and be able to be uh, judged on a, on a fair scale, so to speak. To answer your question about guns becoming more competitive uh, style, I would say that, look, competition breeds a lot of the things that we're seeing in law enforcement, and we are behind the time in law enforcement. And the main reason we're behind the time is because of liability. Now, look, some of the guns that we run in competition, like when we trick out with springs and uh, different springs and different this and different that, um, the reliability aspect of that is not going to transition over into the, uh, the road. Like I need a gun and that's all for liability purposes. I need that gun to run 100% of the time. So when I take a manufactured gun, like a Smith and Wesson out of the box, law enforcement gun, if I go and do a bunch of tricks to it and then that gun doesn't run when I need it to run, well, then that falls on the officer and that ultimately falls on that officer's family and that officer's, uh, you know, his wife and his kids, if he's married or if she's married um, and, their, and their immediate family. So we as a company, I can tell you, want to make sure that that gun runs 100% of the time. So we've spec that gun to, to be able to do that. Now, when I say that competition is, is breeding things for the civilian market or even law enforcement, we look at magwells. You know, what, what do magwells really do? Well, in my opinion, they do two things. Number one, they put my hand in the grip in the same position every single time. So when I go to grab my gun, my, gun, my hand, my primary hand is in the same position every time. So that gives me a more consistent draw stroke. That gives me a more consistent presentation. That gives me a more consistent consistent expectation of where that sight's going to fall when I present the gun to the target. The other thing it does is it does help with reloads. It allows me to be able to be a little bit smoother. I can miss the, you know, the bottom of the gun just a little bit for that mag to be feet, uh, fed up into the gun. So is it going to make me faster? I'd say physically, it doesn't make me faster. I can still load the gun at about a, a 0.9 point, you know, right around a second from shot to shot with a production gun. But if I put a magwell on it, I'll be more consistent at those times. So I'll have a higher probability of uh, sticking that reload with a, with, a magazine, with a magwell on there. When you look at optics, you know, look, the guys like Doug Keenig, uh, you know, Rob Latham, Todd Jarrett, the big shooters, Jerry Mitchell, the guys that were big shooters uh, back in the day, the pioneers of USPSA and IPSC and things like that, they've been shooting red dots on pistols for a long time. And, uh, you know, Doug and I have had conversations about this for, for a while. And now you're starting to see 
red dots get introduced into law enforcement. Like that's the number one thing guys are calling me about. They're like, Hey, what optics guns do you guys have? You know, what slide length is it? And then do you have them? And the answer is yes. And we we're meeting that demand with, um, you know, five inch guns, four and a quarter inch guns, four inch guns now with all uh, slide optic capabilities. And so it's not a matter of if it's coming, it's a matter of when it gets here and when that department adopts that technology uh, into their firearms program. And that was all pioneered by competitive shooting. Look at uh, muzzle brakes. Guys have been running muzzle brakes in three gun for years and it keeps the gun running flat. And yes, it's loud and it's annoying and all this other stuff. But look, if I can sit down at 50 yards, I can get in a prone position. I can put six rounds on that target as fast as I can pull the trigger. That for me is a tactical advantage. I don't care about the noise that it makes when that happens. I worry about that dude that's either shooting innocent people or threatening to shoot innocent people. And my ability to put him down, him or her down faster is in, if it's in my gear and equipment that allows me to do that, then why wouldn't I do that? That's like saying, you know, uh, you know, I take a 45 and the recoil management of a 45 is far different than it is on a nine millimeter. And so if those two things, if, if nine millimeter gives me the ability to put tar- rounds on target faster, more accurate, why wouldn't I go with that? Right. No, that's not driven from competition, but it's just something to think about when it comes to putting rounds on target. Yeah. I, I love red dots. I mean, I haven't, I've only had one opportunity to shoot a, uh, a pistol with a red dot on it. And it was a, it was a game changer to say the least. Yep. It's a totally different setup. If you're running a, if you're running a long gun with a, a red dot and you're shooting it's smooth. It's, it's really neat. It's, it's fun to do. But when you move that transition that onto a pistol, I found that it was a complete game changer. It made things so, so much easier. Um, especially for somebody like myself, who's not a, (laughs) I would not consider myself a good shooter by any means. So for somebody who's an amateur shooter like myself, it made things a lot easier. And I think that's important when you talk about law enforcement in general, where you have, over 700,000 law enforcement officers in the United States, how many, what percentage of those are high level shooters? Probably, probably not too many. So if you have one, one small adjustment that can make a significant difference, I, you know, I don't see why people wouldn't start moving towards that. You know, a lot of departments are starting to approve it and it's such a new, a new technology in the law enforcement space. There really isn't a lot of policy written on it. There's not, we're all trying to figure it out, right? There's a lot of, uh, I teach a two day um, pistol mounted optics class for law enforcement. And it's more of a how to scenario, how to use it, what are its capabilities? Um, What are the limitations of it? What do you do if this happens? What do you do if this happens? And honestly, it gives them a lot of reps on, on, on using it. And so, you know, the application part of it is obviously up to the scenario. And I don't build scenarios around, well, if this happens, you'll respond with this. This That's up to the departments. That's up to their their use of force and, and ROEs. But uh, when you look at the how-to of it, I find that it makes good shooters better. It doesn't make crappy shooters better because, number one, probably the reason why they're a crappy shooter is because they anticipate. And so, it doesn't matter what sights you have on the gun. If you place the gun on the target and then you go to pull the trigger and prior to the, the trigger being pulled, you move the gun to anticipate recoil. It doesn't matter if you have an optic or iron sights, you're still going to be low left. So it might not fix that problem. The other thing that I'll, I'll make mention since we're on a podcast, and this, is, this would be good information for people to understand, is that if we stand and zero that optic, I'd say I recommend 25, uh, 25 yards is where uh, people should zero optics. But let's say we stand and we shoot it. If we're inputting uh, or if we're, we're low left and we're, uh, you know, anticipating a little bit, you're going to put that into the optic zero, which means if I'm, if I'm hitting low left on the target, I'll move my sight to hit for the center. But that doesn't compensate. All it's doing, excuse me, all it's doing is compensating for my uh, anticipation. So I definitely recommend, you know, to, to bench the gun, stabilize the gun as best you can. Because when we go to zero rifles, we have a lot of, we have three, four points of contact on the gun. 
the shoulder, the magazine on the ground, the primary hand, the support hand, and then, of course, your cheek weld, being able to touch that and really stabilize the rifle. A lot of guys are finding when they go to zero that optic for a pistol, you know, they're like, oh, my, my zero changed, you know, because from day to day, their impact, their point of aim, point of impact changes, and it's because of how they're inputting into the gun and their zero. Like I said, it's not going to, if it's a, if they're a crappy shooter from, from the word go, it's not going to make them necessarily better. But like what you said, it will help with the process of being able to streamline what has to happen. Meaning identify target. I put red dot on target and I pull trigger versus identify target, present my sights. Okay. Are my sights good? Are they in the, is the front in the rear? Yes. Is the front now on the target? Yes. Okay. Now I can pull trigger. So it does simplify that process for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's so many technological advances that are coming out now, and uh, let's. You know what? Let's let's jump on it. Let's talk about it. What? I mean, you're with Smith and Wesson. You have been for a while. What is some of the stuff that Smith and Wesson has been uh, has put out lately that uh, that you're excited about? Man, so we are we're meeting the demand for these optics pistols. This is like I said, it's not a matter of of if; it's a matter of when. And so, uh, not only on the competitive shooting side are people starting to gravitate towards it because if you are a, a for instance, uh, you know, you want to try new technology like a red dot on a pistol, it does simplify the sight, so you don't have to worry about front sight, rear sight. Uh, it doesn't matter what condition you're shooting in, whether it's light, dark, dusk you know, whatever, you're still going to be able to see your optic. If you're an older shooter, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of guys out there, you know, I'm 41, I'm going to be 42 here this week. And, um, and so my eyes are not what they were when I was in my 20s. And so being able to see a dot now helps tremendously. And so even our older shooters uh, are now being able to get back into the game. So there's a lot of wide variety of spectrum of people now that that we can touch with these optics guns. And so Smith recognized that as being something that was going to be uh, big. And of course we met the demand, uh, our performance center guns, Tony Mealy does an amazing job with these guns. I've had the ability to shoot them and the triggers are, are good. I mean, this is, this is one gun that I can pull right out of the box. I can put an optic on it and I can go to work that day. Like period. I love the five inch gun, the five inch gun, the 2.0 shoots so flat. You don't have the weight of a steel pistol. They just changed the rules in USPSA now where you can shoot like a 59-ounce gun. Um, so the, the standard 5-inch, I think, was like 28. So it might be like 29, 32, something like that for the 5-inch gun. Uh, but I'm telling you, they shoot so flat. They shoot so easy. The ergonomics are amazing. Um, and so the Performance Center has like the 5-inch, uh, the 4 and a quarter. On the law enforcement side, we just recently launched a whole line of optics guns. So we have the five-inch gun, we have the four-and-a-quarter, and we have the four-inch gun to help meet the demand of smaller frame shooters, um, the guys on the, the like the long slide guns. I personally, you know, we, we ran five-inch guns with iron sights because we wanted that sight radius. Well, you don't need it with an optic, but I do like having the weight of a longer slide because for me, it shoots flatter. If it shoots flatter, then that means I can shoot it faster and I can keep it on target. So I run five-inch guns with all my core guns um, and absolutely just love those things. Uh, the law enforcement side, what we did was we don't have the uh, – the triggers aren't as nice, uh, but they're still the same factory 2.0 trigger, which honestly is is probably one of the better triggers on the market. Some guys gig us for the, the shoe being curved, and some guys don't like that. They don't like the amount of take-up, but – you know, I proved time and time again, I'll put a 2.0 pistol right next to a 1911 and guys can't shoot the 1911 any faster uh, when we start to, you know, run the gun really, really fast. And so, uh, you know, having that and seeing that, uh, you know, kind of makes sense, but you kind of have to see it in person to understand what I'm talking about. But the law enforcement guns are, uh, we have front slide serrations now. That's something that Smith & Wesson hasn't really had before in the past. And so we have front slide serrations on the five inch, the four and a quarter and the four inch. Just kind of a little side note to something new since you mentioned something new. Uh, Smith & Wesson for the first time has come out with a short barrel rifle. Uh, on the law enforcement side, we have an 11 and a half inch gun now. We also have a 14.5 inch gun that we came to market. We released these at SHOT Show and it is, uh, it is definitely something to look forward to in the, uh, in the future. Uh, if, if there's a law enforcement officer out there right now listening to this and is like, hey, how do I get my hands on that or get more information? 
uh, just follow up on this podcast. You can get my information and, uh, and reach out to me and I'll be glad to uh, pass that information along to you. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things I wanted to talk about too is for anybody who is interested in getting some training, and I know you have your own training that you do personally with people, whether they, and it doesn't matter if you're civilian, law enforcement, military, whatever, um, where can, where can people find you and what kind of training are you putting out there right now? So, uh, right now I've got a couple different courses on the books. I do work full time. So shooting on the weekends is, uh, is kind of a secondary thing. And so, uh, right shooting, W-R-I-G-H-T, shooting.com is my website. And so under classes, I have a class schedule. Everything's pretty much U.S.-based. I've got a couple of optics classes up on the schedule here. Um, I'll see a lot of competition pistol two classes, which is definitely something that I advocate for police officers to, uh, to attend. It, it, you learn how to play the USPSA IDPA game a little bit, but we focus on all of those advanced shooting skills to understand how to read the gun faster, uh, work with a timer, work with a log book, really take you to the next level with, uh, with shooting. You know, people can reach out to me there and, or on social media, uh, right shooting on Instagram and Facebook. I post a lot of tips, uh, obviously updated schedules there, things like that. People can get a hold of me there as well. Yeah, it's awesome. And and for anybody listening to this, if you go just into the show notes on this, all the links to those will be there for you. Before we let you go, Brandon, with all this stuff that's happening with COVID-19 and people being quarantined and how long that's going to last, we don't know. What are some tips that you would give to officers, to shooters that are at home right now that maybe don't have the option to go out to the range? What's some stuff that they can do at home that's going to help them with their game? Man, dry fire, you know, uh, make sure you got an unloaded gun, find a, a room or a space and, and just start dry firing. And so uh, the way that I kind of set that up is, is I'll start with a draw and I'll do uh, about 25%. I'll do 25 draws, 25%. And then I'll do about 25, 50%, then 75%, and then at 100%. And so uh, one way that I measure my 100% is I take a timer and I set a part time to it. And so it'll beep to start and it'll beep to finish. It's almost like a, like a stopwatch, so to speak. And so uh, I'll set my 100% as about 0.8. And what I'll do is I'll set it for 0.8 and the buzzer will sound. I'll react to the buzzer. I'll give a presentation on whatever it is I'm presenting to, a three by five card, or honestly, I'm lazy. So I'll probably do like a little wall switch or something like that. Uh, but I'll do that draw. And so that'll, that'll get my repetitions in. And so it's good to start off slow and build into that position of where the gun's going to sit in that expectation of where to see the site. The, uh, do, do your reloads. You can do those at 25, 50, 75, and a hundred percent. You can set the timer to beat the clock. And that's another way to, uh, to make sure that you're on time because what feels fast might not be fast. So you can set a part time for two seconds, or if you think that you might not be able to make two seconds, set it for two, 2.5. And when the buzzer sounds, you already have the gun up. When the buzzer sounds, mag out, mag in, and then present the gun again. When you present the gun again, you should see an acceptable sight picture on the target that you're aiming at and have that trigger prepped, ready to go to the wall. And so I start at 2.5 and then decrease by a half second every time. So go from 2.5 to 2 seconds to 1.5 to a second and see if you can beat that second. So from beep to beep, uh, you should be able to get the gun loaded and have it back up on, uh, up on target. Uh, you can move with your gun through your house. Obviously, make sure it's unloaded. Make sure that you know any kids running around or people you're going to muzzle. But uh, you can create little obstacle courses in the in the uh, in the in your house to be able to go in and out and around and through. Um, just moving with your gun, having awareness of where the muzzle's pointed, uh, things like that. When to present the gun. Uh, a lot of times, I have uh, I have in my house. I have a doorway. And then I have probably like a 15 foot wall and then I have another doorway. And so I'll work in those doorways with presentation, using cover, reloading between those two positions. I'll work on exploding from position one to position two, presenting the gun as I get to that position two. I'll set up little sticky notes on the walls. I don't have all those IPSC dry fire targets. I could care less about that. I'll just take a sticky note and just put it on the wall and that's target one, target two, target three. And I'll work on memorization of how I want to shoot the targets and, 
that sort of thing and where the position of the targets are and things like that. Um, but I'll do that for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. I don't do it for very long cause I get bored with it. And so you can take maybe in the next day, work on your movement with your draw. So instead of just having that 25% standing draw, now I'm moving forward. I'm moving to the left, moving to the right, moving back. You could do that with your reloads as well. Excuse me. Start with the gun up on target, buzzer sounds. Now I'm taking a step forward while I'm reloading. And so try to make it uh, simulate everything that you would do in a match or under the stress of running your gun and just really fall back on those foundational fundamentals and, uh, and keep those working. That'd be a great thing to do during this time. And then I guess maintenance, <laughs> you know what I mean? When you look at it, a lot of guys don't take care of their guns. They have no idea how many rounds they have through their guns. So it's a great time in this downtime to be able to order some new mag springs, clean out your magazines really good, change followers, change the springs in the guns, maybe take the gun completely apart. If you're an armor, you understand how to do that. Uh, clean the gun up, get it lubed up, get it ready to go, fresh batteries, fresh fiber optic, things like that. So then once we get the green light, man, we're off and running and you've got everything taken care of. I was gonna I was gonna say, yeah, if you don't know how to take it apart, don't do it. I had uh yeah. I had an incident. <laughs> oh, no. Well, cause here's the thing. I mean, after being with the with the military for so long, we're used to for, to stripping firearms all the time. And so when I got home, uh, somebody had given me a, a 30, 30 lever action and I was like, Oh, I'm going to take this thing apart and clean it. And I pulled one too many pins out and this thing freaking exploded uh, on me. <laughs> and I, was like, oh no. I was like, Oh God. I was like, I, and, and the way obviously you understand the way the lever action is there's, there's so many bits and like aside from an AR or a shotgun, there's a thousand more pieces to it. So I had, yeah. uh, I basically sat there and I put them all into, I policed up all the pieces, put them in a baggie, took them to the, the local gun shop. And I was like, I need somebody to put this back together for me. Oh no. <laughs> that was That's, embar- That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Don't do that to yourself. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hard. That's a hard one to deal with. Listen, man, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today and, and talk and shop with me and I'm excited. Um, I know we're, we're talking about hopefully finding a way to get together and, uh, and, uh, hitting the range one day here, but, uh, thank you so much for taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for, for giving me a call and I'm glad we were able to connect and, you know, hopefully maybe somebody will get something out of this podcast and, and be able to, you know, better themselves and help keep themselves, you know, safe on the sh- street or, you know, whatever capacity they're using their firearm in. And, uh, you know, and, and it's good to know resources out there, people that, uh, that, that you can call on or you can ask questions for. So I'm, I'm here for questions and, and would love to be able to help out in any way I can. Right on brother. Love it. We'll make sure everybody got, has your information. And, uh, I mean, you guys can contact Brandon at any time questions and stuff like that. Or if you want, you can always go through me as well and, uh, and I'll put you in touch with them. So thanks a bunch, man. And we will talk to you very soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. That wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to iletsummit.com check that out the live version is done and gone that took place in july 2020 but you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very 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 low price make sure to use the promo code breakdown to save even more check that out at iletsummit.com thanks again for being here with us at the tactical breakdown and until next time stay safe Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.